0: morning, everybody. Morning. It's great to see you all out this morning. And um, my name is Jeff, and I'll be teaching a lesson today. But before we dive into the lesson, um, <clears throat> would you all do me a favor? And um, if you were unable to be here last Sunday, and G&G is your church home, it's where you normally attend. Would you, uh, would you raise your hand? Now, don't, please, don't worry, okay? We're not, like, taking attendance, and uh, we're not going to shame you for not being here last Sunday. We actually have a questionnaire for you um, that we want to make sure you have the opportunity to participate in. So just hold your hands up, and, and uh, the ushers will bring those to you real quick. Um, this is our 2020 Lesson Series Questionnaire. And for those of you that call G&G your church home, You've, if you've been attending for a while, you know that we plan our lesson series a year in advance. And so each January, you receive, uh, in, in your packet of information, you receive a lesson series brochure that kind of outlines the lessons. Better answer that. Um, <clears throat> and, could you, and could you let them know that um, I'm on the other line? Okay. But anyway, um <clears throat> It outlines the lessons uh, for the year, and, um, and the, the um, questionnaire uh, basically gives you an opportunity to weigh in on what topics or issues uh, that you would like for us to address, and we really covet your feedback. Um, the leadership team uh, really wants uh, to get that so that we have kind of a window into um, what's, what concerns you. Um, things that uh, you want us to talk about here at Good News. It also enables us to kind of put our finger on the pulse of the church. And we gear our lesson series throughout the year with that input in mind. So please fill one out, drop it in the containers in the back of the auditorium after the service. Or if you prefer, on the, on that survey it does tell you how you can do it online if you prefer to do it that way. One other thing I would, <laughs> I would ask if you do it on paper, please fill it out before you leave um, and take a few minutes after the service and fill it out. The reason we ask that is because we found in the past that when people take them home, they don't ever come back, okay? And so um, <laughs> please do that. And um, remember, it's anonymous, so don't be afraid to give us your honest questions about Christianity, about the Bible, or what it has to say, or about the walk of faith. And um, we really appreciate your help on this. Okay, <laughs> you're going to have to bear with me this morning because my voice is, is kind of rugged uh, today. Um, <clears throat> but last week we started a new lesson series, a six week series entitled Following Together, which is also being supported by a life group study based on uh, a book that, that um, the life groups are using by a guy named David Platts called Radical Together. And and if you're not currently in a life group, I would encourage you to fill out your Connect card and check the box for life groups, and we'll get you connected with one this week. Now, this study is designed to help us explore how we, okay, both individually and as a church family, how all of us in this together can become not casual Christians. That's not what we want to be. For casual Christians, the essence of Christianity is basically I attend church. That's about it. We also don't want to be cultural Christians. And the essence of Christianity is basically for a cultural Christian is, you know, I'm a Christian provided it's convenient and it's consistent with the culture in which I live. So as long as my religious... Experience doesn't put me outside the mainstream of whatever our culture is, then I'm good. We don't want to be either of those. We don't want to be casual about our faith. We don't want to be cultural about our faith. We want to be radical Christians. The essence of a Christian life is life altering, it's game changing, it's a difference making faith. It matters in every area of our life. And during this series, we're discovering what it means to be a fully functioning follower of Christ. Not a Christian in name only, not just somebody who goes to church, but a person who is committed to following Jesus Christ, emulating his attitudes and his words and his actions. Now today's lesson is entitled, A Follower's Faith. And lately, I've been grappling with this question, and you may think this is kind of odd for somebody who's been uh, in this kind of role for 21 years now, but I've been grappling with this question, what is faith? What is it? Now, think about that question for a moment. What, what does that mean to you? If I were to ask you to define faith, how would you define it? What, what does it mean to place your faith in Christ? What does that look like? What difference does it make in how you operate from one day to the next? What change does it make in how you live your life, the priorities you set, the decisions you make, the, the things that you will or you will not do? Does it change any of that? I don't know about you, but, but I've found some of the recent surveys very disturbing Surveys that indicate that the number of people in America who self-describe as Christians is on the decline, has been for some time now. While the the number of people who self-describe as nuns, N-O-N-E-S, in other words, they have no religious affiliation, no particular faith, those numbers are going up as the numbers of Christians in the United States is going down. And I wonder, aren't people of faith supposed to be impacting the culture in which they live? I mean, I mean, think about it. If the church is growing in places like China, which it is, why is it declining in the United States of America? If the church is growing in Iran, Which it is, why is it declining in the U.S.? Perhaps you've seen some of the research by the Barna Research Group. They do religious polling. And it indicates that Christians, in large part, behave no differently than the majority of people in American culture who have no faith. Isn't that fascinating? In other words, if you put a Christian and a non Christian in America side by side, other than perhaps what they do on Sunday morning, you couldn't tell the difference. Whoa. And I wonder, aren't people of faith supposed to live lives that are obviously different? Lives that shine like a light in darkness? And then what it's supposed to be like? Perhaps you're like me and and you've been disillusioned a little bit lately by the recent high-profile defections by well-known Christians. I mean, when when a popular Christian announces that he's rejecting the faith, always makes the news. And I find myself wondering, what is faith? What is faith for these people? You know, I came across an article recently entitled Another Pop Culture Christian Loses His Faith, and it just wrecked me. It's by a guy named David French. He's a senior writer for the National Review. And and what I'm going to do is read a part of this article to you because it just hit me so hard. And I want you to hear this. You see, within the last three months, Josh Harris, a pastor and author of the best-selling book on sexual purity entitled, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, posted in an Instagram, and here's what he posted. I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The Bible phrase is falling away. By all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Harris also announced that he and his wife are divorcing, and he apologized to the LGBTQ community for teaching biblical sexual purity in his books and as a pastor. And I wonder, I mean, what happened to this guy's faith? I bought his book for my boys when they were teenagers. And how would a pastor suddenly reject the biblical principles he's been teaching for years? How's that happen? How did he lose or deconstruct his faith? And then in August, Marty Sampson singer and songwriter of the popular worship band Hillsong United announced in an Instagram post that Christianity, quote, it's not for me. This is the guy who wrote Oceans. This is the guy who wrote What a Beautiful Name. Songs we've done here at Good News Gathering. And here's what he wrote in his Instagram post. Time for some real talk. I'm genuinely losing my faith, and it doesn't bother me. Like, what bothers me now is nothing. I am so happy now, so at peace with the world. It's crazy. And I'm thinking to myself, you got the last two words right. Because the Bible has a whole lot to say about being at peace with the world. You see, people of faith aren't supposed to be at peace with the world. We're supposed to be different than the world around us. And now, he's lost his faith. Think about that. In his article about these high-profile defections, French makes some observations that I found absolutely fascinating. And you may, you may agree, you may disagree, but just let this roll around in your head for a moment. He wrote this. He said, as our culture changes, secularizes, and grows less tolerant of Christian orthodoxy, and that word orthodoxy simply means basic teachings, and beliefs of Christianity. He says, I'm noticing a pattern in many of the people who fall away. They're retreating from faith not because they're ignorant of its key tenets and lack the necessary intellectual and theological depth, but rather because the adversity of adherence to increasingly countercultural doctrine grows too great. Now, think about what he's saying here, folks. He's saying it's not a lack of knowledge or understanding of what the Bible teaches. It's a refusal to hold to what the Bible teaches in the face of cultural pressure. Wow. In other words, it's not that they don't know. It's that they wilt when the heat's on. he goes on to say the failure of the church isn't so much of catechesis which is which is for those of you with the catholic background you're all over this but it's simply it means instruction in what the bible teaches okay he says it's not a lack of knowledge or or it's 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 not the failure of the church isn't so much of catechesis but of fortification of building the pure moral courage and resolve To live your faith in the face of cultural headwinds. Wow. He's like, it's not a matter of knowing the truth. It's a matter of having the courage to live out the truth in a culture that's headed in a different direction. He goes on to say this. Christians are not prepared for the social consequences of the profound cultural shifts. They're afraid to say what they believe. Not because they face the kind of persecution that Christians face overseas, but because they're simply not prepared for any meaningful, adverse consequences in their careers or with their peers. And I remember reading that and thinking, no, man, I hope that's not true. In other words, what he's saying is he said most Christians in America today would rather be under the radar so their friends don't know, can't figure it out, or for heaven's sake would never have an open discussion with them that might involve disagreement. Oh, we couldn't, we couldn't handle that. That'd be too He said, even though we don't face persecution like Christians face overseas, I mean, think about it. If you engaged in a spiritual discussion with one of your coworkers, what's the worst it would get? Chances are, thanks but no thanks. That's about it. Too scared. We don't have the backbone for that. We couldn't handle it if we were afraid that our career might might be affected by that. Or if a friendship might be affected by that. You know, the article poses an interesting question. He says, Are you faithful? He asked that question. And, and when I was reading that article, I was like, Okay, he's, ta- he's talking to me. Are you faithful, Jeff? And he said this I'd submit that you don't know until your faith is truly tested. Are you faithful? Am I faithful? I mean, do I really expect that just because I'm a Christian living in America that I should roll through life without ever having my faith tested? And if it happens, what I will can I stand up to the cultural pressure or will I retreat? Will I kind of become silent, stay under the radar, make sure nobody knows? Or will I conform? Kind of like Josh Harris, you know what, I'll just kind of adopt my beliefs to what everybody else seems to be thinking in our culture at this current cultural moment. You know, the article closes with this really chilling observation. It says, as the worldly pressure and secular scorn continue to mount, expect to see more announcements like Josh Harris's and Marty Sampson's. Expect to see more friends and neighbors retreat and conform. And I'm telling you, friends, this article has haunted me for the past few weeks. And I found myself asking questions like, What kind of faith do do I have? Has it truly been tested? Do I tend or find myself avoiding situations or people who would probably test my faith? Do I just avoid them so I don't have to deal with it? Am I unwilling to stand up for what I believe? Is it difficult to do the right thing? What kind of faith are we producing here at G&G? Many of you know on my, on my days off when I'm not doing this, a lot of times I'll go serve in the, in the preschool, the nursery preschool, and I often wonder... If we're producing the next Billy Graham or the next Mother Teresa, you've heard me say that many times here. After reading that article, I wonder if we're producing the next Josh Harris or Marty Samson. It scares me. I'll tell you what, it scares me for them. There's a verse in the Bible, Matthew 18, 5. It goes like this. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. But then Matthew eighteen six says this. And these are the words of Jesus. This isn't Jeff. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Whoa. Think about that. Unfortunately for these two, they have tons of influence. People hang on their Instagrams. And it concerns me for them the influence that they have on people who believe. Now, friends, our focus verse for this lesson series is Romans 12.5. It's up on the screens. Let's all recite it together. Here we go. In Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. In in, In other words, in Christ... For those who follow Christ, though we are many, we form one body. Many, yet one in Christ. And each of us belongs. We're part of a family of faith. A family of faith. But what does that mean? What is it? And we need each other for support and encouragement and accountability to help us keep the faith. But what is it? Let's go to God in prayer, and then we're gonna learn from two missionaries and a jailer. Thank you, Father, for this day that you've given us and for this time that we have together. Please help us, Father to learn what you would have us to learn this morning. Give us an open mind, a mind that's open to hear from you this morning, because, Father, that's why we're here. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Friends, uh, scholars, uh, well, first of all, for those of you that are new, you got an outline as you came into the auditorium this morning. It's a white page, a uh, white sheet with holes punched on the side. And if you'll take that out, it's got the scriptures we'll be dealing with today. Now, for those of you that are rich, um, I am having, like, major problems with this microphone. Want me to get the handheld? All right. It's definitely on. (laughs) All right. Okay. Scholars believe that the um, account occurred, uh, that we're going to read today, occurred somewhere around 50 to 52 A.D., about 20 years after Jesus ascended back to heaven. And the Apostle Paul, the greatest Christian missionary ever known, is in the midst of his second missionary tour. And he would travel from time to time uh, on these missionary tours. And in this particular tour, um, he he travels from Jerusalem, which is in in um, Palestine. You see that down there on the right-hand uh, uh, side of the, um, the map. There, he traveled north up to a place called Antioch, which was in Syria, and then across Turkey, what modern-day Turkey, all the way into what we probably today consider like the uh, north of Greece. Um, to a city called Philippi and what Paul would do as he went on these missionary journeys is he would move from town to town, he would roll into town, he would establish a church or he would perhaps strengthen a previously existing church and then he would move on to another town and in the midst of this particular tour he ends up in an important Roman colony, a city colony is really what it was. And in those days, Rome could designate certain cities as actually colonial towns, and they became kind of the commercial and political center for the region. And Paul typically would begin, when he rolled into town, by visiting the Jewish synagogue. And so the reason he would do that is because the Jewish folks already had a background and belief in the God of the Bible, okay, or the Old Testament was what they had in, in those days. And so it was very easy for him to connect with them and simply introduce them to Jesus. It was more difficult to try and connect with people who had absolutely no background of faith in the one God of the Bible. Now, interestingly enough, when he goes into Philippi, he discovers that there is no synagogue. That's where the Jewish people would meet. There was no synagogue in that town, which meant that the Jewish community in that town must have been extremely small. Interestingly enough, there was a, there was a, a, a rule, I guess you could say, among the Jews, that you could only have a synagogue in a town if you had ten male Jews in that town. And so the fact that there was no synagogue there indicates that there were very few Jews there. But Paul and his missionary companion Silas found a small group of believers meeting outside the city on a riverbank. And so one day, as they are going through the town, they run into this demon-possessed slave girl. And this girl had this ability, apparently demonically inspired, To predict the future. And so what they did, her masters did, or owners, is they used her to make money. And people would come to her and ask her to tell their future. And she would tell them and they would pay sums of money for this. And apparently, according to the scripture, her masters made a lot of money off of people because of this capability that she apparently had. Interestingly, though, when she encountered Paul and Silas, apparently just out on the street one day, she begins following them around the town, and she's shouting stuff and raising a ruckus, which is interesting because it's kind of like cheap marketing, right? I mean, she's gathering a crowd for these two guys, and the demon within her apparently recognized that they were men of God, and so she begins to shout. These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Now think about that. Here she is, okay, in a culture that really has very little background in belief in God, the God of the Bible, and she's yelling to people, these guys are here to tell you how to get saved. And they attract, it attracts a crowd. And she did this apparently for several days until Paul finally commanded the demon to come out of her. And it did. And her masters were furious. Why? She's no longer making money. She's worthless to them. She can't tell fortunes anymore. So they seize Paul in Silas. They arrest them. And they stripped them and beat them, the Bible says. It goes like this. After they had been severely flogged. Now understand, these these two guys are missionaries. They're they're, there to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. But they get arrested. They take their clothes off of them. And they flog them. Now, it could be they flogged them with a whip. It could be that they were whipped. Some believe that they were actually beaten with rods. Now, some of you may remember about 15, 20 years ago, a young American kid got caught in Singapore with drugs. Remember that case? And they caned him. Same kind of thing. Okay? It's brutal. It says, after they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. Now, most of you have seen stocks before in American history. It's where people have their feet in these board things that keep their feet, you know, stuck in so you can't run or anything like that. You can't get away. It was different then. The stocks that you see used in America are gentle compared. Because in that world, the way they did stocks was they spread your legs as far apart as they could. You began to cramp really quick. It was extremely painful what they did to you. And look what happened. About midnight... Paul and Silas were praying and singing. They're singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Now, I don't know about you, but chances are, if I'm Paul and Silas, I'm not praying and singing. I'm whining and complaining, right? I'm upset. I'm thinking about leaving the faith because you know what? God isn't so good to me right now. But you don't see that here, do you? This is a tough day for Paul and Silas, flogged and in stocks, and yet they are singing and praying. Who does that? How could you do that? I think it's fascinating the other prisoners were listening to them. Even in the worst condition, they were still a witness to other people. The Bible goes on to say, suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew wide open and everyone's chains came loose. And I don't know about you, but if I'm Paul and Silas, I am out of here. Okay, I'm thinking God is good after all, right? Things are looking up. I'm running. At once, the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. You may think that's odd. It was not in those days. If you were expected to guard a prisoner, especially if you were a Roman, and you lost that prisoner, that prisoner escaped... You were as good as dead. And quite often, it wasn't quick. So if you lost a prisoner, and I can imagine this guy was thinking this, it's better to do myself in than get what's coming. So he prepares to kill himself. But Paul shouts, don't harm yourself. We're all here. And I'm thinking, who does that? I mean, if I'm Paul and Silas, I'm thinking, I'm, uh, you're on your own, dude. All right? I'm out of here. I'm gone. This is, this is me looking out for number one. God, you know, God obviously delivered me. It says, the jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought the mask out and asked, sirs, what must I do? <laughs> To be saved. Underline that phrase. What must I do to be saved? All right. The, chances are this jailer heard that girl talking about, you know, these guys are here to, to save you. And maybe he, maybe he didn't know much more than that, but he knew something's up. What must I do to be saved? And they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved, you and your household. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. Think about this picture, guys. Here you have this jailer who was responsible for making sure that they never escaped. And he takes these guys into his house. He washes their wounds. And immediately he's baptized. And I'm thinking to myself, what kind of faith prompts two missionaries to face persecution and yet pray and sing? And what kind of faith prompts a jailer to immediately begin serving his former prisoners and be baptized? What prompts that? Now, friends, I think when it comes to this question, what, what is faith? I think there's a lot of confusion in the Christian community. I think there are some misconceptions about saving faith. If you'll turn over to the back of your outline there, what I want to do, and, and, and you'll notice some of you regulars are looking at this outline, and you're thinking, man, this is really different from previous ones. And, and we, we, the secretaries tell me they call this, landscaped it. We landscaped it because what I want to do is I want to present two extremes that we see in the Christian community about saving faith. And I want us to be very wary of this because it's very easy to go down these roads. The first extreme is really the left hand column of that outline. And it's the extreme of faith. Saving faith is faith without works. Okay? It's faith without works. In, in, in other words, it's it's just simply well, I believe. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I even believe that he died on the cross and, the, and that he rose from the dead and that he went back to heaven. I, be, I believe that stuff, so I'm good. I'm, go, I'm gold, right? Me and God, were like this. And a lot of people will take verses like Ephesians 2.8. God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. In other words, it's, it's not salvation. Saving is not something that is a reward for good things we've done. They would look at John six twenty nine, Jesus Himself saying, "The work of God is this: to believe in the one He has sent." Or perhaps the Apostle Paul writing to a young pastor named Titus. But when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So it's just, it's just an intellectual exercise. It's about me believing the right stuff, and that's, that's what saves me. So my actions, or my works, if you want to use that word, have nothing to do with my salvation. Nothing to do with it. Therefore, since I am saved by grace through faith, I don't have to do anything. I don't have to do anything. And what is the result? Quite often, it's a negative witness. Because if we don't have to do anything, then I can live as I want. And my negative witness, people see that my actions don't match with what I say, I believe. I don't emulate Christ and what you also have is unfruitfulness. In other words, we don't bear fruit for the kingdom of heaven because somehow we got it in our heads that all we have to do is believe the right stuff and that's it. Here's what we have to understand, friends. You can't find a single example in either the Old or New Testament of a person who had faith and did nothing. Nothing. You can't. See, if there is no radical change in a person's life, in behavior, it's reasonable to question whether or not they really have faith at all. But there's another extreme. And this is the extreme right hand column of your outline. And this is faith plus works. This is the idea that many Christians have is that they are saved by faith plus what they do. And these people will quote James too. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing Notice well, what he's saying He's, he's, he's saying, well, okay, it's great to believe in God, but if, if nothing else changes, what's wrong with this picture? And if you follow this extreme, then my actions or my works have everything to do with my salvation. I believe, and I have to work in order to deserve God's favor. I believe, but I got to work. And therefore, since I am saved by grace through faith and my works, I have to do everything I can to earn God's grace. Let me repeat that. Since I am saved by grace through faith and my works, I have to do everything I can to earn God's grace. i got to work. And the result of this extreme is service prompted by guilt. Okay, i got to do this. i got to do this because you know what? I might not get in heaven if I don't do this. And so I'm in this ministry. I'm in that ministry. I'm working with this charity and I'm working with that. And I'm do, 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 do. And the question I always have to ask myself is, when have I done enough? The result is service prompted by guilt and desire. And this is something that may seem counterintuitive to some of you, but is a desire to make God owe me. In other words, I do this and do this and do this. And if I do enough, then God owes me. God owes me heaven. Or God owes me a good life because I've done this and this and this, and I do so much stuff for him that I'm, I'm owed. And the reality is, folks, God doesn't owe anybody. So if those are two extremes, if those two extremes we have, faith without works, it's all an intellectual exercise, or faith plus works it's it's dependent on what i do what is saving faith and friends i think i think saving faith and i've put it there in that cross diagram on your outline at the top is a faith that works a faith that works James in chapter 2 goes on to say, You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. And what he's talking about there is is not just intellectual assent. Yeah, I believe these things, but it impacts how I live. In other words, that bullet point on the left side of the cross is my actions or works are manifestations of my faith. You can't separate the two. You don't have the one, oh yeah, I believe, without the other, this is how I live. They are bound together. As it says there in the center of the cross, faith entails both belief in the good news and practical submission to the truth of the good news. You see, if we truly believe in the good news of Jesus Christ, we will submit our lives to that truth and live accordingly. But what does that look like? There on the lower part of the cross, it says, Therefore, since I am saved by grace through a faith that works, my life exhibits. It exhibits some things. First of all, repentance. Repentance. It exhibits that understanding that I need God's forgiveness for the sins that I've committed. That I need what Jesus did on the cross. And that I am determined to the very best of my ability and with God's help and power to change those parts of my life that are out of line. That's repentance. That's true repentance. It's not just to continue doing the same things over and over, but to change. A second thing that my life exhibits when I have a faith that works is obedience. Obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And, friends, Christians lead obedient lives. The third thing is service, serving others. I find it interesting that the very first thing the jailer did after he asked, what must I do to be saved, is he began dressing their wounds. He takes these two missionaries out of the jail and into his house. Interesting. And dresses their wounds. He serves them. The Bible goes on to say that he's baptized, which is an obedience to what Christ both modeled and commanded. The last thing (laughs) there is sacrifice. When you think about what kind of faith prompts two missionaries to face persecution and yet pray and sing, it's a willingness to sacrifice for the cause of Christ. That's what Paul and Silas demonstrated through their faith. The jailer immediately began serving his former prisoners. It's amazing. Now what is the result? The result is not service prompted by guilt or a failure to serve because, hey, all I have to do is believe. But the result of a faith that works is a lived belief prompted by love and gratitude for God's grace. You see, that's why I put that middle road of faith that works inside of a cross. Because friends, when we Understand and when we truly grasp what God did for us when He sent His Son into the world to die on a cross for our sins, when we really get that, then the idea of a faith without works makes no sense. The idea of believing that my works somehow save me in light of the cross makes no sense. But it does produce a faith that works, prompted by love of our Father and gratitude for what he's done for us. Friends, it's my open prayer that this church will be a church that produces people of faith. A faith that works. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we could spend in your word. And Father, we're thankful for this story of Paul and Silas and their encounter with the the demon-possessed girl in the jailer and what it shows us about a faith that works. Father, it's our hope and prayer that Good News Gathering Will be the kind of church that is a light in our community because we possess a faith that works. For this is our prayer in Christ's name. And we all agreed together and said, Amen.